Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 242 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm super excited to bring you today's guest. He has been a friend for a number of years now, one of my best friends, actually, Frank Beeler. And uh, it's not a question of what Frank does. It's like, what has he not done in his life? So at 22, he was made the CEO of a major insurance firm. Then he joined Elevation Church, eventually uh, working on their senior leadership team through some incredible high growth years. And then a couple of years ago, he transitioned over to Rethink, also known as Orange, where he's executive director of leadership and became CEO of the Phase Family Center. I joke with him and so do some other friends that he has 25 full-time jobs. And that's not really a joke. He also um, <laughs> has a great family life, like he does. And he works out like more than me. It's crazy. And so I wanted to pick Frank's brain on productivity. Uh, I did this once before years ago, for those of you who have been longtime subscribers, and we go into brand new territory. So Frank was on, uh, I think episode 98, where we talked about this. And I brought him back because I don't think anyone that I know of juggles more than I see Frank juggle, and he does it effectively and sustainably. So uh, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, this is part of uh, something I'm really passionate about because today and tomorrow are the last days where you can get the High Impact Leader, my online training course, uh, at its current price. And it's the last time that you can get coaching. I decided to open up 2019 that I was going to do some direct coaching. So we've offered the high impact leader before, and it'll be around, not at this price, but the coaching is actually going away. Today and tomorrow, this is, by the way, going live if you're listening when it's live. Uh, so specific dates, January 30th, 31st, last days to get coaching. So I'm going to do four Facebook lives where I will coach you and your team through how to put the high impact leader to work in your life and answer your specific questions. So I'm super excited for that. The high impact leader is really a system that I developed on the other side of burnout. I burned out 13 years ago and it came from not leading particularly well, like effectively in terms of leadership, but not effectively personally. And I spent a number of years just reconstructing my life. And soon my productivity soared. And within a few, you know, a few years ago, people asked me, how are you so productive? And finally I said, you know what? I, I think I learned some stuff and I put it into the high impact leader course. So that is available right now at a very low price and an exclusive coaching option. You can learn everything at the high impact leader. You'll hear in this interview, Frank and I talk about calendar a lot, especially at the end. That is the heart of the high impact leader. And I show you in 10 modules that are actually shorter than this whole course, how to get your life and leadership back, how to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. So I would love to help you with that. Head on over to thehighimpactleader.com and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation as well. Got a quick question for you before we jump into the interview. What events are you going to this year to make you a better leader? One of my absolute favorites is Rethink Leadership. I help coordinate it along with Brad Lominick and John Acuff and some others. And we're hosting it again the first week of May. It's just two days 
Uh, and I am so excited about this year's lineup. It's going to sell out, but you can still get in now. So head on over to RethinkLeadership.com and register today. Get your team in. It's an event exclusively designed for senior pastors, campus pastors, and executive pastors. If you register before February 21st, you'll get a discount off admission for you and your team and a $50 credit toward any orange curriculum your church uses. So head on over to RethinkLeadership.com, register before it's too late. Just so you know, we're still adding speakers, but we've got Facebook's Nona Jones, Elliot Crowther, who founded PushPay, Joel Manby, CEO of a number of different organizations, most recently SeaWorld, Danielle Strickland's going to be there, Mike Foster, Kara Powell, and again, John Acuff, Brad Lominick, and myself. We'd love to host you. Uh, there aren't rows, there's tables, uh, speakers are limited in the content they can produce. It's all new content. And this year, it's personal. We want you to leave with your question answered. So head on over to RethinkLeadership.com before it's too late. And in the meantime, let's dive into my conversation with my good friend, Frank Beeler. Well, uh, I always look forward to any time that we get together, Frank. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, this is the best. I would move mountains to make sure that we get a chance to talk. And I know we text a lot, but it just feels like, oh gosh, we get to process some stuff out loud together and mm -hmm. maybe some other people get to listen. Yeah. Well, we've had we've had the kind of friendship we built over the last four or five years. Is it five years now? Wow. Yeah. Five years. Yeah. Five years where we get to travel together, speak together. We've gone for Compassion to Guatemala together, spent a couple of weeks together there. You've been to my house, you know, we hang out in Atlanta. So friends from a thousand miles away, but like super legit friends. And I so appreciate you, buddy. Thank you for doing totally. this. You definitely make me better for sure. Well, you're also uh, probably, and I don't say this without much, uh, any exaggeration, I think the most productive leader I know. Um, and case in point, here we are, you're in Atlanta, I'm north of Toronto. And, uh, you know, we had a few technical issues to set up this call. But you texted me like, man, I was here 20 minutes early to set up. And that is Frank. Like that, that is you. We, <laughs> we joke that you have 25 full-time jobs. I think another mutual friend and I were giving you a really hard time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, 25 right. full-time <laughs> jobs plus a family and four <laughs> kids. And Frank shows up early uh, to set up the microphone and get everything going so that it's a good podcast. That is classic Frank. Well, man, yeah, I know. I'm I know. What are you going to say to that? Yeah, right? I'm like, like yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry, gosh, I set you up to Thanks. fail. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, but I think it's been a couple of years since we've actually done this show together. You were at Elevation Church. I don't think you've been at Orange for just over a year. Uh, almost two years now. Mm -hmm. Two. It's yeah, two. It's been wow. two years. Two years. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, and I think it was last time that you were at Elevation Church. So tell us what's happened since then. For sure. Um, yeah, a lot. You <laughs> have helped me. Yeah, <laughs> you've helped me carry through a lot of this. And so uh, Jess and I, I mean, to keep it short, Jess and I made the hardest decision of our lives, right? To transition off staff at Elevation, yeah. uh, where we loved our team, loved our leaders. Uh, gosh, it was such an incredible privilege to be a part of that and spend a, a good, what, seven years there being a part yeah. of growing that and serving in that way and feeling a call to ultimately serve millennial families and figuring out how do we focus and help churches win in that space and do that in the context of everything else we were doing. And at some point, they started to collide and it was sitting there going, okay, all these things, this big machine of elevation, all these people, all this responsibility, 
was requiring so much time and focus. And yet here we were with a heartbeat specifically for millennials as they have kids and how does the church engage them? And so we started to feel this tension, which led us ultimately to that hard decision of transitioning off staff of Elevation, moving to Atlanta, coming on staff to be a part of Orange and creating something new called Phase Family Center. And hopefully we get to talk a little bit about that. Oh yeah, we're going to talk all about that. I I want to update you. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, But gosh, what a whirlwind best years. We grew so much as leaders during that time, but now on to something new and exciting and challenging. Um, And like I said, Carrie, it's been awesome that you've (laughs) helped carry me through when I was like, what have I done? This is awesome. This is terrible. This is awesome. You know, that roller coaster. Well, I I honestly think the stuff that you're juggling would have eaten most high capacity leaders alive. I mean, you know, we track really, really closely, almost on a daily basis. And you know, I look at what you're juggling and I'm like, yeah, I I don't know too many other people who could do it. So uh, quick question for you, and I should know this, <laughs> but you're still in your 30s, right? Yeah, I'm 39. I'll be 40. So it's coming wow. 40, 40 years old in just a few months. Yeah. So not even 40. I thought that was true. I thought, no, you haven't had the big one yet. Uh, but your, your, your work life has sort of had three phases. So uh, you spent your early 20s in insurance, or as you like to say, insurance, right? Right. Where does that start? <laughs> right. Is that like in the <laughs> South, it becomes insurance? Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically once you get to about Virginia, anything yeah. north of Virginia, you say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit north of Virginia. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, but tell us, so, and then, and then you uh, got relocated and you started um, volunteering, attending and volunteering Elevation Church with Pastor Stephen Furtick. And uh, then eventually ended up coming on staff, which we'll talk about. That was sort of what I might think of as phase two. And then phase three is two years old, where you're at Rethink, and now you're the CEO of the Phase Family Center, which we will talk about, which is a an orange-related, Rethink-related venture. Um, so you really got three phases. But I want to go back to your days in insurance and sort of give us that story and tell us about some of the key lessons you learned about personal organization, because I think, you know, at 27, you're writing million dollar deals or at 23, you're writing million dollar deals, which is again, not a typical story. So talk about, about that. It was, it was, uh, terrible in the way the transitions were handled. I went on as after graduating from the University of Tennessee, became a sales guy, just like everybody else uh, there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all just selling insurance and home and auto insurance. And uh, to be honest with you, Carrie, I just got really bored uh, the the computer gave the rates and it was just like here do you want this or not I don't I don't know what to do it just it didn't <laughs> feel very challenging and so I started geeking out over insurance and learning a lot about other products and, and where organizations specifically were struggling to get insurance and maybe I could help them because that felt like something man it, we could hang out I could meet different clients I could leave them better off I educate them a little bit along the way and maybe I write their business maybe I don't but they're better off because they took the time to chat with me and so it was less dependent on some quote and more dependent on a relationship which felt more like the way I would sell or the way I would interact. And I wasn't very good on the golf course. You know, I wasn't like, hey, let's sign the deal on the the fourth hole um, or green or whatever. Uh, that was not <laughs> yeah, my yeah thing. clearly golf. you're not very yeah, good at no, golf. <laughs> clearly not. <laughs> What's going on there? And so uh, here I am. I started writing some larger accounts and the owners of our company actually started a wholesale brokerage firm of insurance, which doesn't matter except it took all their attention. 
And suddenly somebody needed to run this this 32-year-old agency, mom and pop shop in small area of East Tennessee. And I kind of ended up being the guy at 23 or so, 22, something like that. And it was a terrible install. I mean, I want you to imagine the, the father of this family coming in, calling the staff together and saying, well, just want to let you know that uh, Frank's your new boss. And unless the building's on fire or he's lost all the money, um, I don't need to hear about it anymore. And he got up and left. <laughs> And that was my install, the worst install ever. At 22, 22, everybody there is older than me. Many of the people had been at the agency longer than I had been alive. I mean, literally, they had been around that long. And so here I am looking at, we had 31 staff members at that time, and I'm just sitting there as the, the new GM or whatever title they gave me. And I'm ready to do like... PowerPoint presentations and they're sitting there going, I just want to get back to my desk and who are you and how are you going to change my life? And in a bad way, they just were convinced that I was just going to screw oh, yeah. everything up. Yeah. It was yeah. You, that is an uphill battle if I've ever heard it. Yeah. And I'd only been there a couple of years at this point, year and a half. And so I was selling, I was on the road. And so I didn't have much relationship with these staff members. And so it took a while and I sure learned a lot as far as uh, personal agendas professional agendas, different personalities, just trying to navigate those tensions. Gosh, it was it was trial by fire and I enjoyed it for sure. But it was a difficult start to, to why, my why do you think he put you looking back on it now with a bit of distance, why do you think he put you at twenty I mean, that's a bold move no matter what. I mean, you know, at twenty two, but if he's got thirty one employees, it's not like, you know, it's you and 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 the janitor. So you're the CEO. He's got 31 employees, some of whom, as you say, have been there longer than you've been alive. And he throws the keys to you. What do you think, because we, we, I really want to drill down on productivity and uh, you know, effectiveness as a leader. What, what do you think he saw in you? I, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know that the guy was a great business leader. I mean, looking yeah. back, I mean, he was, he was solid. He was good at making money. Um, I, I, gosh, I don't know that I've thought about it this way, but my, my first reaction is um, I was disciplined. And so he knew I was going to at least have my ducks in a row. I wasn't scattered. Mm -hmm. I had everything in order. I knew where the money was. You know, I knew those kind of things. But I think also um, I was a safe bet, even though I was young, because from late teens, I've displayed a lot of loyalty. It's just how I'm wired. I'm kind of an honoring guy. I, I try to be respectful. It's just kind of oozed out. I don't have to try at it. And so that loyalty was like, well, I'm going to give it to him. I don't know that he's going to screw it up, but he's certainly not going to intentionally mess anything up. And I think he's comfortable enough to raise his hand to say, you know, things aren't working or I'm struggling a little bit or, or something's not working the way we planned. And so um, mm. I think that was it. I think I was safe from the standpoint of I wasn't going to do anything malicious and I was organized enough to at least know whenever they wanted to ask, I'd be able to give an update on the state of the union and kind of how things were performing. So how did you organize yourself at that stage in your life? Like what were some of your rhythms, disciplines? What were some of the things that, that made you capable of stepping into a role that, you know, to, to repeat what I said earlier, would have swallowed a lot of people alive? I had read a few sales books and, you know, one of those how to win friends and influence people, right? You know, so need Which that is actually a good stuff. book, despite all the uh, jokes. I reread it last really year. It's really good. It's a really good yeah. book. And I you, you so also insightful. was at the Ultimate Sales Machine, which is on yeah. my to read yes. list, 
when we were together exactly last year. Right. Mentioned when it. Chet I'm Holmes, like, I read that. Wouldn't one. normally buy it, but Frank said it's good, so yeah. it's on well, my reading list. The thing list. I liked about it, and and that a few other resources, just started me down this path of going. Things don't happen by accident in sales or business. Systems have to be in place. Structure has to be in place. So let me just listen to what's broken. What is frustrating our staff currently? And how can we systematize or improve those things? So I kind of lean that way. And then if I was going to keep selling and we were going to keep performing at, at the level that was expected of us, then what systems, what plan do we have to put in place? And in that book, Chet Holmes basically lays out a contact system of like, hey, this big fish that you want to land one day, um, well, maybe just once a month, make sure on your calendar, you do a little nudge or a little nurture or every three months do this, every six months send a gift, every year try to close the deal, whatever it is, uh, but find your rhythm. And what it started to have me do is I would schedule follow-up with the big fish, my local clients, my employees. I started doing one-on-ones. That I'd never been a part of any organization had done one-on-one. So it just seemed obvious of like I needed to follow up with everybody. And what I found is that when I started to schedule all that time, there wasn't a whole lot of time left for anything else. And so hmm. I had to get more efficient with follow-ups. And I was doing dumb stuff back then. I don't know if it's dumb. It was effective. Uh, but it was, it was kind of quirky. Like, like, like in my what? office, I didn't have chairs except for my chair. And so every meeting with an employee was always a stand-up meeting. I just didn't How have did you time. know to do that? And so I just, here's what I figured out. This is silly. Um, there was a sales guy, his name was Robert. Robert would cold call people and he would call customer, clients all day, commercial businesses, just trying to land deals, get an opportunity to talk to them. He'd call them and whenever he had a positive thing happen, he would stand up walk around telling everybody what that somebody had answered the call and was nice to him and not mean to him. <laughs> he'd go get coffee and he'd go to the bathroom. And what I realized was there was that adrenaline kick that kicked in when somebody finally engaged with you. And so his productivity, every time something good happened, went down. And so I just watched him outside my window all the time. And so I said, we've got to get more efficient. And so I did dumb things. Once again, removing chairs. I didn't know. I just, I knew something had to change. And I made a rule that as soon as something good happened, I had this little bell at everybody's desk. Everybody would ring the bell and they had to make five more calls before they got up. Because what I realized <laughs> was they were, they were in a good place. Their tone had changed. Their posture had changed. Now is the right time for them to make another phone call. And yet they're going to talk to their buddy instead and wasting all that good energy. And so it was just this methodology of going, no, this is the sweet spot. Stay in your seat. Be a little more disciplined. You'll be way more effective. And we started making more outbound calls. We started having better opportunities and more systematic opportunities to follow up with customers. Instead of just showing up when there was a problem, we were showing up just to be nice. And I right. tell you, some of those principles have shown up in a big way in volunteer culture and how do you show up when you don't need something with volunteers in the church world and putting those systems in place to make that happen. It's like working with donors. <laughs> One of the, the top things that I coach leaders on all the time is like, don't just talk to your donors when you need money. And preachers don't just preach about money when you need money because that was a mistake I made in the early days and it's a disaster. But if you just reach out to people and you're kind to them or you take them for lunch with no agenda or... You talk about money and like what's for people, that, that's huge. So you changed all those rhythms. Um, what did, how, what, how big was the company? 
That's what I wanted to ask you. Oh, that at that like, time, do you remember sales at that started, time? Gross sales? Yeah, yeah, seven, eight. Let's see, I'm doing the math as commercial as personal. So it was like twelve million in overall premium uh, a year. So, um, which isn't isn't massive. I mean, it's that's fine. No, it's hey, good. hey, dude, you're um, 22 and you're running a twelve million dollar company. Yeah, and that's what's super thing. cool is that once we found a rhythm. It was awesome because then it became very easy to expand. And within five years, we had doubled profitability, only added two staff members, and were licensed instead of one state, we were licensed in 47 states. And so we had all this major uh, efficiencies with the same staff members. We didn't have to fire a bunch of people and change our culture and just like hire new so we could restart it. It was just when you help people get a win of something that they really valued, and in this case, a lot of them were just trying to make money to provide for their family or college or a car for their teenager to help them get their first car or whatever it was. When you found out what their real goals were, not I want to buy a yacht, but like let's get really practical on, on what really gets you excited about your family and personal. So we made some changes in insurance to where it was personal for for us. What was everybody trying to win? What were they trying to provide for a family member or medical stuff or whatever? Now that became kind of the vision board at everybody's little cubicle. I mean, hmm. I'm talking classic insurance, sea of cubicles, right? We're right. all in this together. Just everybody clocks in. You're dreading your job. How do we change that? culture to one where we all know why we're serving, what we're working for, what our what our goals are, and then how can we all kind of help each other win? So we went from giant filing cabinets with papers to everything scanned in, right? And everything at your fingertips. I mean, it was a digital revolution for insurance was happening at that time. And so suddenly people didn't have to walk around as much. Everybody became more efficient. And we actually started, as we were growing, we actually shortened the work day by an hour per employee uh, and told them to get in later and leave earlier because we had so many efficiencies. Instead of just squeezing <laughs> more out of them, we said, breathe a little bit. And I'll tell you, they had an hour less of work there at the office, but they were actually working harder and producing more in that shorter time than they ever were before when they were kind of bitter or frustrated or weren't even sure why they were coming. How did you, because I got to ask this question, I know we're focused on productivity, uh, but I got to ask this because there's so many young leaders listening who are in exactly your situation. Maybe they're not 22, but they're 32 and everyone they're trying to lead is like 40 plus. And again, that's such an unlikely install, as you say, right? Where the guy's just like, well, here he is. Here's your new boss. <laughs> uh, you know, that's nuts, dude. And so... How did you get that workforce motivated? I mean, obviously, when their paychecks are bigger and, and they have more time for their family, things are going better. But to get there, you've got to get, you got to lead up. What, how'd you do it? You know, it was interesting because I tried to get personal with everybody that I was working with and that was working for me, but I was pretty ineffective at, getting personal with the bosses, the families that in, the family that installed me. Mm. I tried, but that wasn't what spoke to them. It was, is everything okay? Our finances good. They didn't need a new friend. You know, they were good. <laughs> and so what I found was that I just needed to communicate to them that they could trust me with information, responsibility, and 
that was, okay, my job is to filter that information. How does it apply to my team and, and staff and crew? But at the end of the day, I don't know how much I actually led up as far as influencing, how do I say this? Uh, I guess, I don't know that I changed their mindset about our company or anything in the process. I think what I uh, was able to do was they got more and more comfortable delegating and empowering me with responsibility and ultimately our organization. And so at some point along the way, they kind of just forgot about us. You know, they were on to the rest of the thing. And, and so in many ways, it was on an island by 26, 27 you know, it was, it truly was that unless everything's falling apart or we've lost all the money, we're not even going to talk to you. It was kind of a weird arrangement from that standpoint. So I don't know how much I influenced up in that season. How about those 31 people who got passed over for the CEO or manager job and uh, were twice your age? How did you, because so many people walking into a company as the young sales guy or the young manager or the young pastor, they just get overwhelmed by that. That was my case. I mean, I was 30 and everybody in the churches where I started were at least pretty much twice my age. How did you handle that? At the end of the day of those staff members, there was four or five that were really jaded, that mm. really took it personal. The other ones, they didn't aspire to it. They didn't have the the business background or or leadership or they didn't have any of the, the education. They didn't have the stuff necessary to do it. So at the end of the day, there was only four or five that were threatened. Um, two became friends. Uh, one ended up leaving and tried to start his own agency and actually broke his non-compete. And that became, a, gosh, a trial at a very young age trying to figure wow. out he's trying to steal business. And so that got really messy. <laughs> um, but then a couple of them along the way, as we got closer together, as far as just what are their wins? What are they trying to do? One guy, he was the slickest salesman we had. His name was John. And at the end of the day, he just wanted a relationship with his son that he had kind of botched. And so our one-on-ones ended up becoming less and less about sales and more about what steps is he taking to rekindle that relationship? How can he move forward there? And the reality is, when we got to that level of relationship, he didn't have that in the church or anywhere else. He wasn't going to church. So he wasn't connected. No one else cared. And so by caring for him that way, it became very easy for him to say, hey, John, I just need you to do this. Do you mind staying a little later? Or we got to knock this out or whatever. Those became easy asks because along the way, I was the one person that I know of that actually cared about what he was worried about at nighttime when he left. And it wasn't just about making more money. Get some personal stuff going on. And so I started to learn how to navigate those things. And to be honest, most of the problems that they were bringing to the table are things I had never faced and didn't understand and had to be careful about how I spoke into them. But I had a couple of good leaders in my life that kind of gave me some good guardrails to encourage, to be there for them, to pray with them, but then not act like some young kid that had all the answers. Well, and that, that reminds me, you know, our mutual friend, Jeff Henderson, who says in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, make sure you focus on how the team member is doing as much as you focus on what they're doing. And I found that to be a real key. You discovered that pretty early. It's like, if I can just help you get to your personal goals, we'll figure this yeah. one thing out if you're half motivated. That's great advice. Anything else? So the company's scaling up. All of a sudden, you're in 47 states. You know, your revenues are, are triple point gains, the whole deal. 
How were you scaling your personal capacity in the midst of that as a leader in your 20s? I was struggling. I was struggling to do it. I mean, just honest, I was falling through it. You know, at that point I was married. We had had our first kid, then our second kid. Jess and I were still trying to figure out. We were young and here we are trying to figure out being parents. And uh, Carrie, one of the things that was a real challenge, we we served in the local church on the weekend. That was life-giving for us. But the insurance business where I was at, the more I worked, the more money everyone made. And that was a real tension to try to figure out, like, what's the right amount? How do you provide for your family? Um, But then turn it off and go home. And knowing that one more phone call wasn't just another phone call, but very likely more more income. And so um, I think we stumbled through it a lot. We, We got to a place where I was traveling a lot and I was winning at work, but not winning at home. Jess had decided after our second child, she wanted to take a year or two off from working just to be with them. She knew she wanted to get back to work pretty quickly, uh, but honestly, she was pretty lonely at home. And here I am on the road and we're trying to do church stuff together, but because we're coming home doing church stuff on the weekends, um, we were serving in different areas of ministry. And that was a recipe for disaster. So now I'm home. We got our own volunteer meetings happening on different days at different times. And so we really were stretched thin. And so I would say while I was winning at work, I and my capacity was growing and I was figuring out how to get more efficient with stuff. And I was, gosh, working while I was on the plane. I didn't watch movies or goof off. Yeah, I didn't you and read I've books. talked about I mean, that productivity yeah, yeah, hack. I was, I was grinding. Yeah, I was grinding. Um, I grind I didn't do stuff when I went to hotels. I just worked. I didn't go golf. I didn't go see things. I worked so that when I got home, I'd be more engaged. But reality is when I got more home, I got more engaged at, at church and what was happening there and still wasn't figuring out the family thing. And so we had some hard conversations and stumbled a little bit. And um, ultimately, it got to a point where we knew that the way it was currently going wasn't okay. And we were going to have to make some adjustments. And so Andy Stanley at that point, gosh, this is so many years ago, he had said, uh, as part of like a five or six part series uh, around family or something, but he said this phrase, I don't remember, it was a marriage thing or marriage retreat or whatever, I don't know. But at some point along the way, he said, you need to have a default of kind of these six principles. And one of those was hurry home. And that phrase, hurry home, was not my default. In fact, my wife knew that I would take every opportunity not to hurry home, but not because I was unhappy at home, because there was always something cool to strive for or succeed. And so suddenly, um, hurry home became my default. And it was, okay, not, hey, I'm going to be home and then call immediately later and be like, no, I'm not going to make it by then. No, I'm not going to make it by then. So yeah, that whole sorry, sorry, sorry thing. It was, how do I shift the way I lead at work so that I can truly have a default to hurry home. And then when I need to stay or travel, it's the exception to the rule, not the common thing. And that little phrase, once again, I can't even tell you the context of it, but hurry home was huge for us because I told her that was my commitment, that I was going to start hurrying home. And that alone was this major shift. And here's the funny thing. My productivity at work didn't go down. I just Isn't that crazy? I was, eh? I was lingering. I was just, I was like trying to wrap up one thing. And I was just kind of, at the end of the day, I was less productive anyway. And so just mind slower. So I was struggling a little bit. So I was less productive anyway. It wasn't my yeah. best energy as we've talked about and in high impact leader and like knowing the best times of the day. And so I was performing slower 
And I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the journey of the deal. And so uh, I was like, okay, wait, but I shouldn't I enjoy my kids and family more? And so it was really that was this pivotal point to where then in preparation for a crazy pace at elevation and all the stuff that we're involved in, that premise um, has stuck the rest of the time. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I forgot about that teaching. I think Reggie and Andy did that together and Hurry Home was something. And, you know, as you were saying that, it reminded me of my year in law in downtown Toronto where, uh, you know, a phrase like that, and I'd never heard of Andy Stanley or Reggie Joyner at that point. And, you know, this was in the mid 90s. But I, I knew I was going to be in law for a year because I was heading to seminary and I did not get this right in my first decade of ministry, you know, hence the high impact leader and burnout and blah, 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 all the stuff I learned on the other side. But in that one year in law, I knew that the grind was you put in 18 hour days, you wear yourself to the bone, um, you come near to death. And if you're lucky, we'll hire you. And long story short, I just decided, because I knew I was going to seminary, it's like, well, I'm going to game the system. And so I would go in early at 7 a.m. And I didn't have the phrase hurry home, but that was like, I'm having dinner with my wife every night. I'm jumping back on that subway. I'm back in the car at home, you know, for five o'clock. And I would sneak out when the, when the uh, legal assistants left, when the secretaries left. Uh, because they would, they were doing eight to four, right? The lawyers would stay there till midnight, you know, chain smoking at their desks or whatever they were doing. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm leaving early and hopefully nobody notices. And I was just massively productive in, in those 10 hours a day I would work or nine hours a day. And at the end of the, the year, I'd told those guys, hey, I'm going to seminary, you know, I'll give you a good year of my life, but that's all I'm giving you. Um, there was another student in the firm at the same time as me who had worked 18 hour days every weekend, all night. I never worked a weekend. The only time I was ever missing dinner was when I was in court out of town and, you know, traffic or whatever, which, which wasn't every day. And they let him go and they offered me a job and a position. And they said, you're the only student who made the firm money. I made them over a hundred thousand that year. And it was that thing where if I had decided to just burn the candle at both ends and sell my soul for a year, it wouldn't have been that outcome. So pretty cool. Okay. Well, that was the first sort of season of your life and you started to shift gears and you guys started attending at that time, a brand new church plant called Elevation Church in Charlotte, right? Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, what, what an awesome time. We had acquired a couple of companies over in Charlotte. And so my wife and I decided, let's move. Let's move to a bigger city. Let's experience this. Needed a church. So I got connected to Elevation at that point. You know, maybe the what church year was, was that, three Frank? years old. Let's so see. It was that was 09? Let me think. Yeah, it was 09. Yeah, it was 09 that we moved. So fall of 09. So the church three and a half years old at that point. Um, and you know, we went to the permanent location. They had one permanent and two portable at that point. And the permanent location, everything seemed so figured out uh, that we were kind of like, maybe maybe this isn't where we're supposed to be. So we went and visited a couple other churches. I had heard of Stephen one time, Pastor Stephen, um, at a Catalyst event. But I mean, I, we yeah. weren't moving to Charlotte for that. People do that now, which is mind-blowing and awesome yeah. and incredible. Uh, but at that time, that's not what you did. And so... Um, 
uh, we went there and went to a couple other churches. And then we actually went to one of the portable locations. And that scrappiness of setup and tear down and just seeing all these volunteers kind of thrive and lead through that was real attractive to Jessica and I. So we started attending there and then serving, doing setup, tear down at the, the what was the broadcast location at that point, uh, Providence High School, and just having an incredible time. And just after about a year, they offered us the opportunity to come on staff. It didn't make sense. Financially, it didn't make any sense. Um, We didn't feel called to vocational ministry, so that was a whole journey. And yet a year later, uh, here we are, um, selling our home in Tennessee, transitioning our life in such a big way. We had our home in Tennessee still because we thought we were going to move back. Um, The Carolinas moved moved out of that home, ended up getting a small town home and launching uh, what's now known as Elevation Riverwalk. It was called Rock Hill at the time. Hmm. Uh, So the fifth campus for Elevation coming on staff as campus pastor and children's director, Jessica doing that. And then, um, gosh, a year after that, Pastor Stephen pulling us central to oversee the family ministries of Elevation. So, I mean, it was a whirlwind few years. And the interesting thing looking back, and I know we're going to get there, but the transition from insurance to Elevation was significant as far as financial, but seemed really clear. It wasn't as big a deal as a transition from elevation to the next season of our lives. So that phase, because there were such significant callings. So, I mean, I know we'll get there, but that was just so unique and just telling the story and thinking through phases. It's just kind of interesting. But gosh, got in in the flow at elevation, this high, fast-paced, urgent opportunity to reach people for the gospel. And it was amazing, but gosh, it happened so fast and it, it was a whirlwind. And well, more than a couple of things happened during the elevation years. But two of the things that I know from knowing you is the church was in an explosive growth phase and you were in an explosive growth phase because you started as a campus pastor, you got pulled into central and you kept getting promotions. Like every 18 months or so, there'd be more responsibility for Frank. And so that was a time not only of massive scale for elevation church in, in that, those seven years you were there, but uh, a massive time for you to grow your own leadership too. So, so take us there. What did you learn in the elevation years about growing your effectiveness, your productivity, being home because you went to three kids and then ultimately more recently four because you adopted? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like you put your family <laughs> life on hold and you and Jess, knowing you both, you, have, you actually have a good marriage. Like you really do. So you managed to to work through that stuff, which sometimes eats couples alive. So tell us about that phase. Right. You know, the pace of elevation, um, some people think it's crazy and we, we're kind of lean staffing and gosh, it seems like we're always doing something, but it's a handful of things we do. We just do a lot of it. Uh, but what I learned is that the speed of operations, you know, the speed of, of just the activity um, magnifies any flaws in the systems. And so if you think about it, yeah, yeah. So um, as I'm sitting here taking on more responsibility, I know that a bad decision has bigger fallout financially, relationally with volunteers or the community. And so we were moving fast like a freight train, but gosh, a little rock can throw off a lot. And so Hmm. suddenly... I became even more so systems oriented, even though, once again, I I know I'm I'm weird, Carrie, from the standpoint of like I have this high relational dial and this high systems dial. And and sometimes that's a conflict for me, but it doesn't quite make sense sometimes. But I felt 
Like I had to figure out some of the systems. We had to improve those with understanding what's the win? Why are we doing this? What's the, you know, as, as we've learned, clarify the win, get some clarity around that. And then from there, figure out what systems we had to put in place to really strengthen that. Because those systems are how we operate ourselves and those we lead. And I learned that things like the system of self-awareness, and people don't talk about self-awareness through the idea of a system, accountability is a system, staff culture is a system. If we don't have those things figured out and have a system to develop those among our people, gosh, we're going to fall on our face when you're going that fast. There's just not, hmm. there's less room for error when you're, when you're going that quickly. And so I learned a lot about mm, how do you strengthen those little things so they cause less fallout when you make a wrong mistake. And I think that's a mistake. That's a classic mistake, Frank, that so many leaders make is they don't think systematically, right? It's just like, well, I'll just, I'll just deal with this. I don't know how. I'll figure it out as we go along. So give us some specific examples, if you can, about personal systems that broke that you had to recalibrate or organizational systems that kept breaking. And I mean, it's going to do it, right? Three campuses is different than five is different than 12. Like it's just, and you know, a thousand people is different than five thousand people is different than ten thousand people. So, the, those those gravitational those those pressures are very real. So, what broke systematically, and how did you fix it? There was always a pressure for leadership development, and how do we raise up great leaders? How do mm. we get them ready? Uh, because when you're moving that fast, uh, I guess what I learned is that we take less stops. Um, so when, when you're going quickly and you have momentum, you don't want to lose the momentum. So right. uh, the MARTA transit system here in Atlanta, gosh, it goes fast, kind of, sort of. It stops a whole lot uh, between here and the airport, right? And so it's like, okay, but there's all these places to get on. But if you think about it, there weren't many and there still aren't very many lulls in the seasons at elevation. I mean, even down to our summers, I joke around, our summer at elevation is only five weeks long. And yet hmm. most people in the South have a two and a half month, three month summer between the time that people drop off and kind of school lets out and after Labor Day. Well, ours was five weeks. It was the month of June and the first week of July. And then the second week of July, we were back at it high attendance, driving, pushing, everything's zooming. And then we know we're going to have another surge going into the fall. And so what we had to figure out how to do is how do you make it easier? This is a terrible illustration, but I don't know what else to do to say, okay, if we're a train moving really quickly, how do we install handles and padding on the side of the train? So if somebody comes running and tries to jump on the train, there's more likelihood that they're going to get a hold of it and not get hurt along the way. And yeah. so, so that was our thing. It was like, we're not going to stop. So if we're not going to stop, how do we onboard people? How do we ease them on, help them win? And one of the things we realized was that people talk about when they visit Elevation for like an inside Elevation or some other event, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. So much content, so much information. It's all so overwhelming to soak it in. And so we hear that. But the problem is, I think you can die of thirst drinking from a fire hydrant. You know, it's just you just can't sustain it, right? It's just too yeah, much. Yeah. And so you that's, just pull that's back. That's actually true. And so I'm like, Dive okay. Thirst drinking so, from a fire hydrant. Yeah, yeah. That's a, so I'm like, how do we do that? Well, one of the things we installed in staff culture was something we called talent show. And talent show, so think parable of the talents. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this thing called Talent Show, and it was whenever we had either a guest or one of our executive team members teaching uh, leadership principles, we asked the staff at a later date in their team meetings or whatever to do a talent show where they take a few minutes, they present something they learned, a principle they learned, and how they're applying it in their context. So hmm. Pastor Stephen turned out this great leadership principle about uh, self-awareness or whatever, and here's a video production guy talking about it in his production meeting on how he's taken that principle and apply that to um, how he treats uh, guest cast members on video shoots or the people that do testimonials that are never on camera except for once in their lifetime. And that's when we ask them to be how we nurture and care for them and adjust that. So talent show is our thing of going, you're going to get all kinds of opportunity here. You're going to learn a whole lot, but if you don't make room to process it and apply it, you're really going to miss out. And so a lot of productivity was for me was learning that I'm naturally a learner. I'm hungry. I want to soak it in. I want to drive. I want to push. I know that about me. But at the end of the day, if I don't apply anything, mm-hmm. if it doesn't change the way I lead, if I don't slow down enough to, to observe somebody else say, hey, here's something that happened on staff recently that really broke because we had a flawed system. If I don't stop to check my systems, well, then that was wasted time for everybody, right? So yeah. trying to find that opportunity and elevation was just this like, opportunity for me to to grow and learn that stewardship doesn't just tie to finances, that it ties to learnings, that it ties to time. And in fact, I say more often than not, when I talk about stewardship, I talk about stewardship through the lens of time and energy than I do finances anymore. It mm-hmm. just feels like, because uh, so many people need to think a little differently about that. When you think about your own personal productivity, before we move on to where you are now, what were some things that you changed? I mean, you wrote about some of that in your book, The Myth of Balance, right? But you were trying to juggle family life. It was a rocket ride, those seven years at Elevation. How did you specifically increase your personal capacity? Wow. Uh, besides praying a lot. <laughs> uh, so, in fact, that was a word for a couple of years was capacity. We prayed that word over our family. I believe that's how we ended up adopting a son. I believe that's how we've grown a lot uh, in our leadership and had more opportunities because we were believing God for it. But in the midst of that, I needed to allow some other people to help me navigate that. It wasn't enough for me to go, gosh, okay, let me sit down. I've got to be better now. I've got to be better at all that I do. And so what I found was the things that I was juggling specifically at Elevation. So in any ministry role, uh, people talk about juggling lots of responsibilities. But I believe that all those responsibilities are different shapes, sizes. It's a chainsaw, it's a stick on fire, and it's a, a balloon. You know, and you're trying to juggle these three weird things, right? <laughs> That's the weird combination of ministry. Startup, churches get this, right? It's not just three, the same thing. It's real clean and simple. And so what I found is I had to reach outside the church and go, man, here's somebody really good at juggling chainsaws or yeah. juggling this, or I see that they're really gifted at this. In fact, that's when I started to reach out to you, Carrie, was I saw the way that you thought, and you were blogging at the time, the podcast didn't exist, but I was sitting there going, here's somebody that is thinking about things differently, but I and I appreciate it, and I'm wrestling with some of these same ideas, 
but I don't know how to apply these principles in the speed of what we're doing. I don't know how to slow down. So I've got to talk to somebody about it. And so you and I connected through a comment on a blog post, right? I was just trying to figure it out because I was sitting there going, I can get frustrated because Pastor Stephen really doesn't understand what's happening in our preschool ministry. And I really need his help understanding what's happening with the flow of the day or, you know, whatever the problem is. But I think at some point we have to invite people in But here's the thing. It's not helpful for you to invite people to speak into your life or speak into an area of your life if you don't have a practical understanding of what's actually happening right now in your life. If you don't understand where your time's going, what's creating frustration, and you can't paint a picture then it's not helpful. If I would have reached out to you, Carrie, in fact, in our first phone conversation, uh, Carrie, I remember this. Um, you said to me, uh, I'd asked you a bunch of questions and then you said, gosh, you guys seem to run at a heavy pace and you made a comment about it. And my response to you was, I'm actually really good with the pace. I've got to grow in these other areas. I, I said those words to you. I said, mm-hmm. in this season, I'm doing okay. And then on our next call, you said, Frank, I don't know that I understand how you're keeping this pace. You said that to me. You said, Mm -hmm. I don't understand as a friend, and this is before we were really friends. You're just being kind to me. Uh, You said, as a friend, if you ever need someone to talk through because you're hitting a wall, let me know. You said that to me, but I'm not going to ask you about it every time because it seems like you're good there. So let's talk about the things that you really need help with. And that's how finally I'd found somebody, Carrie, that... Uh, that was listening and hearing where I was struggling and was like, okay, let me help this guy with what he's struggling with, not s- diagnose on his behalf and say, well, here's what I see. And, and I had, and Carrie, you and I talked about it since I had people that I tried to reach out to for mentorship and leadership. And all they wanted to talk about was how I couldn't have a healthy marriage and be okay pace. So they wanted to talk about that. And I'm sitting there going, no, right now I'm actually doing good with that. I just need to figure out how to do this. And so I think there's something about reaching out. Well, it's interesting because we do check, we check in all the time. And I mean, that's just part of our, our rhythm of our friendship, our relationship. But, you know, there are times where it is out of whack and we'll talk about it, but you have an incredible thing. Just a, just a note to leaders who are listening you know, it was, it was a really interesting connection because I remember I, the blog was a lot smaller than it is now, so I could read every comment. I still try to jump in the comments, but I'm probably more behind than ahead. And I'm like, oh my gosh, F. Beeler from Elevation Church, the Elevation Church. It's like a church I really admired, had been tracking since it launched the whole deal. Uh, so I really kind of engaged and we had those phone calls, but I still remember our first meeting. And it blew me away. Was it at Panera? Where was it? It was at a restaurant. It was It was at yeah. Panera just before Orange Conference outside across the street. We walked, or I walked there yeah. and met you and Jeff Brody was with us. That's right. And I sat yeah. down and you opened up your iPad and started taking notes. And I'm like, first of all, I was incredibly humbled. Secondly, I'm like, this is an investment. And I didn't know what, that we were going to become friends. I didn't know that, you know, all that was going to happen. But you know what that made me want to do in that moment? Because I've met a lot of leaders. Not everybody opens up a notebook. Right. It's like, I'm doing this again. Yeah. I'm doing this again with this guy. And obviously it went, you know, in a whole other directions and the whole deal. But like that is if you ever get an opportunity to connect with somebody that you've reached out to, whether that's a pastor across town 
whether that is, you know, a hero online or whatever, please, please, please bring your notebook, take notes. I have people that are building into me. I was texting one on the weekend and one of the things I'm always clear, and I think I've done this with you many times, Frank, is I want to let them know or you know that I have done what you told me to do or that yeah. I tried it and it didn't work. Oh, that's right? good. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I keep really detailed notes and it's like, yep, here's, here's what I have done following up on our last call. Makes a huge difference. Okay. Well, this has been so helpful, but I want to get into uh, the, the last phase, which is only two years long. But I mean, I would have to say in the time we've known each other, uh, the rocket started uh, going a little bit faster. Is that true? If that oh, was even possible, faster than ever. Yes, yeah. for sure. I'm on. I'm on. Uh, my son Isaac has been watching these fast car shows and remodeling oh, shows, yeah. or repair shows, or whatever on Netflix and stuff. And he said, "Dad, I think that you run on on nitrous." You run on nitrogen. You don't run yeah, that, on regular that would be gas, <laughs> which is so funny. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, those people just burn out. They just, they just those destroy your engine. That's what I just keep telling them. <laughs> that destroys your engine. <laughs> well, so far, so good. Uh, so tell us what your responsibilities are because you actually work for two companies. You're the CEO of the Phase Family Center, which is going to be a massive initiative that I want you to talk about. And you're also, what's your title at Rethink? Rethink Orange is the same company. Orange is sort of the public name. Rethink is what we call it privately, but same company Reggie Joyner started years ago. And uh, we both help out with it. So t- yeah. tell me about your roles. Yeah, so at Orange, I'm the Executive Director of Leadership Development. I like to say that oh, very serious because right. it sounds good. important. That's, yeah, that's what I tell so people, feel, so I'm glad nice, that's accurate. Nice. It feels really important. Um, we're still defining that role. We've been defining it only for two years. And so <laughs> I feel like we're getting really close to about halfway through a job description. So, uh, uh, no, at that I get to do when it comes to some of the marketing initiatives at Orange, but then also like coaching, blogs, podcasts, some of the leadership books that we uh, publish or we're looking to publish, you know, that space of helping staff at churches do their job better, uh, which I absolutely love, you know, getting to turn those dials. So I got that. Um, I oversee something called Phase Foundations, which is another organization, which is a curriculum uh, for weekday preschools, non-faith-based so I get to do that. I am, uh, Carrie, I'm having a ball right now. I'm getting my master's um, in organizational leadership at Southeastern. So that's been fun. Uh, yeah, just to do throw that. and go back to school yeah, for yeah, kids go back and to school. Uh, executive <laughs> senior leadership team at Orange. <laughs> Walk us through the list, buddy. It's fun. It's fun. What, yeah, what so, else is on the list? You know, and then, of course, Faith Family Center, which is just this massive initiative. Um, I think that's that's the gist. I get to help on some boards and some different things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, the challenge with all that is the orange side of what we do is so creative. And I like to say squishy in our in our flows of our meetings and the way we're structured. And yet something like Faith Family Center requires such a big project. It's so structured and focused and disciplined. Those two things oftentimes don't reconcile well uh, Hmm. because it's easier if you have two squishy organizations or two highly structured organizations. And so I've been stretched and grown a lot as a leader and I'm still trying to figure out how to create healthy rhythms and manage all this when you have two organizations that are really wired a little different. Yeah. Well, and Reggie Joyner, I mean, if, if he was here with us in the room, I mean, we've spent countless hours together and I, I love Reggie to death. 
But Reggie would be the first guy to tell you he is not an organizational guru. He's a creative. He creates content. He creates, you know, ideas. He hosts experience. I mean, anybody who's ever touched anything that Orange does would know that intuitively about Reggie. And so organization, you know, you're probably the most structured person on the senior leadership team there, uh, which makes you, you know, a necessary part, but also a very unusual part of, of that organization. And then the Phase Family Center. Tell us exactly what you do and we'll make sure you link to it because this idea is exploding, but it gets into uh, a lot of the, the problems that churches have had in trying to get land and buildings together and creating multi-use facilities. So can you give us the like thumbnail of what the Phase Family Center initiative is all about? that you are now, you know, you're the CEO of. Right. It's, gosh, it's, <laughs> uh, it's an awesome journey. You, you get to hear the good and the bad and the roller coaster ride of this. And it's, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. It's, I'm so excited about it. I have to be really careful because, uh, gosh, if I get the wrong group of people in the room, I can get them so amped up about it because I'm so amped up about it that we'll lose focus on other things that still have to happen in our, our day-to-day life. But Faith Family Center is simply um, uh, our attempt to solve two problems for the local church. We see that overall giving is going down, and there are two kind of major expenses with churches, that staff and buildings. So we're like, okay, well, that's a tension that maybe we could speak into. And uh, millennials and young families specifically are engaging with the church less and less. And so it's like, well, how could we help the church potentially solve those two problems? And so uh, it took a, a lot of work and it's been brewing for a couple of years, but it's this idea of Phase Family Center is us simply trying to solve those problems by uh, leaning in on the values of young families, which we are seeing a disproportionate value in any survey that you do with Fast Company or Inc. or uh, Forbes or anything. They'll say that in the top 10 list or top five list of things that millennial parents care about, it's what they feed their kids and or what they what other people perceive about what they feed their kids. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's a thing. It's just like, it's, that's, that's the truth. True. And um, uh, where the kids go to preschool, like setting their kids mm. up for success. So we came up with this idea of building our first ones in Alpharetta. It's steel's going up. It's really cooking along. Uh, but it's a 440-kid preschool and after-school program. And we realized if we do that in a way that feels homey, feels inviting, really resonates with millennial families, if we bolt on a 700-seat auditorium on the side, we've just used for-profit money, capital, to build a church. And so, I mean, AV, all of it, we're putting everything in there. And so a church can be a tenant of our facility and they get access to, you know, a $17 million building um, for fractions of the cost and no capital campaign, right? I mean, you put some signs out, you have your staff, but now you're there, the church that is, they're investing their money back in the community and young families and really connecting with them and spending their time there. We're taking care of land acquisition, development, parking, just all that stuff. You got to figure out facilities and marketing the facility and all that stuff. And so we're doing our first one. We just signed a letter of intent for our second one. And uh, gosh, we could do a dozen more. My hope, Carrie, is that before I retire, we build 100 of these I get to build a hundred churches using capital um, that's not donor development uh, for churches all across America. 
Which is incredible. Like I think, I think it's a genius model, and it was Reggie's idea. And then they yeah. created this separate company uh, called the Face Family Center, which is developing this. So the thing about the Face Family Center, when you really look at it, yes, you're CEO. You're building your first seventeen million dollar structure in Alpharetta, just outside of Atlanta. Um, how many square feet is it, Frank? Sixty-two thousand five hundred square feet. So that's a legit building. Like, you know, there, there are campuses of mega churches that are smaller than that. <laughs> so the Faith Family Center has been until recently, I'm going to out you here, uh, Frank Beeler. Oh, yeah. With an assistant. Yeah, we don't have a big team quite yet. No, uh, we, you don't we, we have will. a big team. And this is what's so fascinating to me is because, listen, I've been involved in building projects. You've been involved in building projects, you know. Companies are involved in building projects. So there's this 62,000 square foot, $17 million facility being constructed right now. And you've run the whole project. In addition to being the executive director of leadership at Orange, which is like insane to me because I know the resources that that takes. Now, obviously, you've got a general contractor, you've got architects, you've got engineers, but you are the point leader on all of that. Plus you're doing investor relations. Plus every time we talk about it, because you and I travel together, you know, some church hears about it and they're like, Frank, we want to meet with you. Uh, that's one of the great dangers. We'll talk about it before we're in. Cause you, you, you could get 500 emails as a result of this podcast interview going, uh, can we be next on the list for face family center? Would you please build <laughs> us a building? Uh, we'd love a 700 seat auditorium, <laughs> right? Uh, right. This is, this is an exploding <laughs> idea. So talk about the personal productivity shifts you have had to make over these last two years to juggle all of these balls? Wow, that's that's a big, big question. Um, I I have had to get more structured with my time. And there are people that if they look at my calendar, uh, there's been people that have been like, oh gosh, that looks miserable. It looks like you're a slave to your calendar. You're so organized. And, and you know, Carrie, I'll literally get off this and I go straight into another meeting and then straight from there to another meeting. That's just, you know, that's just how I operate, trying to be efficient. And there'll be people that say you're a slave to your calendar. And what I would say to that is there are lots of people that don't lean in on a calendar and I'd say they're a slave to their chaos. They the day gets dictated <laughs> to them, and so I'm like, you can you can just go with whatever and yes. just kind of get pushed around. I'm gonna be I'm gonna plan plan the structure of my day and not be surprised or blindsided by things. And so we can we can debate that in a good healthy way. But you know that. Um, everything is in my calendar, right? I, I, I live yeah. off my calendar. I don't have a task list anywhere. It doesn't exist because tasks take time. And so if I'm going to do a task, I need to schedule time to do that. Now, sometimes that block of, of calendaring, which you you do this so well, Carrie, um, that whole block of calendaring may have four items in it. I may carve out 20 minutes to do these four things, send a follow-up, ask about this, do this, whatever it may be. But I'm hyper organized in that way because I know no other way to do it. And to be honest with you, one of the reasons I've found myself falling into just a highly structured calendar and focus and even uh, like I have scheduled time today to prep for a meeting that happens later today uh, because I knew it was going to get pushed to the edges and I'd still still a priority still needs to be done. And so I scheduled time so that I don't get something else going in there because 
The reason I do my calendar this way is I need to understand the fallout of my decisions at the end of the day. Hmm. So if I decide you text me, Carrie, and say, hey, I need to talk. You know, something's going on. Well, relationally, I'm going to talk to you. Like you're my my friend. Like I'm going to be there for you. I need to know what fallout's created from that. Or I need to know the fallout if I decide I want to go take a half day off or um, I go to my daughter's dance thing or whatever, or I schedule this for that. So I schedule my personal time, which you do as well. I schedule very structured family time. And the reality is sometimes that time gets bumped. Things get moved mm-hmm. around. Things get unexpected. Yeah, it's not I a perfect I want to know the fallout. I want to know the fallout from my decision. And by deciding to do this, who loses or what doesn't get done? It gets pushed to later because at the end of the day, every piece of that $17 million uh, building has to have decisions made about it and things figured out. And so if I go, for example, this upcoming Thursday morning, I have a really big interior design meeting and I've got right. some planning time scheduled for that. If I decide that I'm not going to do that or something else comes up that I deem more important, all those decisions still have to be made. Now the timeline is crunched. I just don't get to bump things. You know, it's not this infinite, like we have all the time we need. And so I think the thing that I've learned or had to learn with Faze Family Center in Orange and back to that tension of the squishy creative side and the high structure side is going at the end of the day, all this stuff needs to get done. I've got to get it on my calendar as best as I know how so that if something else comes up, a cool opportunity or something exciting, I can make the best decision. And so people will ask like, how do you know when to say yes? How do you know yeah. when to say no? And, you know, kind of wrestle with that. You know, how do you make your best decision? I use my calendar. Like that, that's, that's the answer to that question. Uh, you know, that's a good answer. We've ended up there. I use my calendar. I can't do February. Right. Right. Period. And so, and then if I can do February, what, at what cost? And right. I just, I, my, my adopted son, James, he's been in our family now two years. He's um, about turned 17. Uh, we adopted him out of the state system. We didn't know him or any of his family. It's been quite the wild ride and challenge for sure. Uh, but along the way, I think one of the biggest things that we've had to teach him is the fallout from his decisions. Mm. If I choose to do this, what does that cost me later? Or what is the reward later? And so um, he didn't have a lot of that structure. And so what I found that in the business world or in the ministry world, we have to know that. So for example, one-on-ones don't get canceled. My virtual assistant that I use through Belay knows this. I do not cancel one-on-ones. I reschedule one-on-ones because they're that valuable. So if something gets bumped and I need to move a one-on-one, that happens all kinds of times, um, where does it go to? And it doesn't just disappear because that person needs investment from me, time, energy, effort, so I can do how and what as far as what the time is that their productivity, right? How are they doing and what are they doing, right? So if if one-on-ones, for example, on a calendar become optional in productivity, um, and it's like, well, that's just my schedule's busy, so I got to bump them. Then when you do have one-on-ones, they shift totally to what? They're totally task-driven, and there's no room for how in relationship. And I don't know how to sustain something in a healthy way without that relational side. So that requires time. Well, and I want to go through these uh, a little quickly because we're coming to the end of our time together. But this is this has been fascinating. How do you have a grid or do you have a system to determine 
what gets on your calendar, a filter, I guess is the word I'm looking for, and what stays off of it. Like, for example, you know, your comment like, you know, I'm not signing business deals on the golf course, you know, on the green or the tee. I don't know the terms, right? So clearly you're not a golfer, right? right. It's right. like I was watching Facebook blow up over the weekend over football and I'm like, I don't follow football. Um, like, I, I don't follow football. I have no idea. I know you're a Tennessee fan. But yeah. uh, like, what what grid do you use? What filter do you use to determine what's in and what's out at this phase in your life? So the things that I want to say yes to, but are harder for me to say yes to, I added structure around. Because here's what I figured out. And let me explain that. Um, the phase family center construction meetings, those are going to happen. Like that's a big rock that has yes. to happen. I can't ignore that, right? That's going to happen. It's your job. <laughs> uh, my, my key meeting on Tuesday, staff meeting and, uh, and the meetings that follow on Tuesday with Orange, those got to happen. Like that's when everybody's here together. I've got to fight for that day and really not mess with that. But what I found was, the things that I want to do or I feel add value to the organization or to the, to the staff um, that could easily get bumped, I want to add some structure on that. So Andy, said, Andy Stanley said years ago, um, it's not my job to fill up your cup. It is my job to empty mine. So I can't mm -hmm. be everything you need, but I'm going to invest in you. So I actually have on my calendar two appointments every week called EYC. Empty your cup. I've been doing this for five years. That's where I just want to invest in some other leader that's not a staff member from a church or from a ministry or whatever. There's two slots. So Crystal, my virtual assistant, she knows there's two slots where that's a priority for me. We need to find time for me to be able to do those things because I just want to. I want to invest in leaders, but a construction meeting and everything else can always dominate that. So what I've learned to do is the biggest priorities, what we call the big rocks, I don't find a hard time finding time for them on the schedule. Right. It's really the things that uh, are of high value, but, uh, and they, they are life-giving to me, they're good for me, but they're not predetermined, right? So I don't know when uh, my friend John Torres, who's a great leader that met you once and thought you're amazing, by the way, Carrie, out in California, I want to talk to him or I want to talk to my friends at Fresh Life Church uh, that are just mm -hmm. amazing leaders that are just finishing up their building and they've got all kinds of exciting questions. Well, the reality is my job isn't dependent on talking to my friends at Fresh Life. And right. yet I want to make sure that we have time to wrestle with stuff. And so I say, how do I prioritize those things that are of great value yeah. But may not fit. So is that would be an example like that's an EYC slot? Correct. It's like John yeah, wants to talk, EYC he goes slot. into an yeah. EYC slot. That's so that's smart. Exactly you know right. what? My wife and I started doing this last summer because I travel a lot these days and life's busier than ever. Uh, but just last week, we sat down and for the next 60 days, uh, picked a bunch of dates on our calendar. Then all it says in that slot is friends and family. Those are dinner conversations for friends and family. Those are yeah. uh, outings with friends and family. Tomorrow we're going to the boat show in Toronto, not buying a boat, but I got a really good friend we want to see. We're going to have dinner with our son. And again, that's a big rock thing. Where's that from? Is that from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, the big rock? You know, I don't remember. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the ether, yeah. I know, but yeah, I think sure. that's Seven <laughs> Habits. Somebody will correct me in the comments. But anyway, um, yeah, that is a really good idea because then you're like, oh, I can't speak that week because I've got, you know, friends and family. And it gives you the margin. Like I was in a meeting last week where we were looking at, well, actually a few days ago, where we're looking at the teaching schedule for February 2019. This is January. Long story short, 
all of a sudden it becomes clear to me that the best move for the church is for me to not only teach all of January, a series I've been working really hard on, but it makes sense for me to do February too. And I said to Jeff Brody, my leader, my successor at Connexus, I'll do it. And, you know, if you leave enough margin pre-blocked in your calendar, then you can determine what to fill it up with down the road. So that's awesome. Um, how, do you, how do you say no nicely? Well, if it doesn't reconcile with one of my priorities or values, it's going to go pretty quickly, right? But there are plenty okay. of things that... So coach um, me, I'm Frank, yep. I want you to come up yep. to Connexus and speak uh, two Sundays from now. And I want you to tell me no. Okay, no, no, forget oh, that. Let's say sure. July. Let's pick July. Let's pick something six okay. months out so that it's yeah, actually yeah, I was more about plausible. It's easy to do two yeah, weeks. Yeah, two weeks from yeah, now. It's like, it's like you're booked. an idiot. Kerry, plan ahead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, but, but six months from now, how would I say no? Yeah, yeah. Simply, so first I'm going to say thank you for the opportunity. Uh, let me circle back. I just need to check and figure out what it looks like for my family. And so I'm going to give myself some breathing room. I don't have to decide right now. Uh, a lot of times we say yes to stuff. And let, yeah, uh, let me go here for a second, Gary. Um, this just hit me. We say yes to stuff because today it makes sense. Because, for example, this afternoon yeah. after my lunch, I have a little margin in my schedule. So if somebody says, hey, could you help me this week? I'm working on a marketing plan for my new startup business. And it's a friend of mine or whatever. I want to help them. I like them. And I'm like, sure. I don't know the parameters around that, the responsibilities, what I've actually signed up for. And today I feel like I'm on top of the world, right? And so my thing is, can you say yes to this and say yes again to this in just a few weeks? And if you look ahead and you're like, there's no way I could do this again. I joked around with a mutual friend of ours that I'm not going to out on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but someone was like, hey, I think it's time for me to start a podcast. And, and I said, oh, awesome. I'm glad you're starting a podcast. That's really great. It was December. And that's a common time to start a podcast because things are slowing down for a lot of right. people going into the holidays. And I'm like, how's that going to look in February? when you're traveling all the time and you don't have your gear and guess what? We don't have a podcast anymore. And so, you know, it's right. like, it's yeah. like, how do you do this sustainably? It's People that sustainability, right? Yeah, that's right. And so I think sustainability is a big part of it. So now let's go back to what, what you said. Well, I've pre-decided how many times I want to travel this year away from my family. And for me, Carrie, I've actually throttled back because my wife has been traveling with her work a lot yeah. more lately. And so that's been another variable. And so for me, I would love the opportunity to come speak. If I'm not bringing one of my kids with me and it's not more about a family experience that, oh, by the way, I give you a couple hours of time while I'm there together, then I'm going to say no. And so it's just not going to make sense. So it's, it's really a question. Can I, can I paraphrase this for a minute? And sure. you tell me if I'm wrong because I might be wrong. Yeah. But it's really a question, Frank, of you have, just pick a number, 10 speaking slots uh, for 2019. And so the real question is, is do I want to give you one of those speaking slots? That's right. That's exactly okay. right. And that's fair. On the flip side, if there's a weekend and Carrie, you're about to kick off a big message. Um, Jeff Brody is going on his anniversary trip with his family. And yeah. then somehow you got sick. You know, that's a different conversation. Well, that's an you know, emergency we fill in for conversation. Friends, so we take care of each other. Yeah. All right, but as so far as planning ahead, I think... We say yes because we're afraid the opportunity will never come around again. Mm. 
And that's not true for most of what we get to do. In fact, we'll say yes and actually do it poorly because we don't have time for it. And the likelihood that we get the opportunity again will decrease <laughs> instead of saying yes to a time where it's better, better for us and them. That's so good. That's so true. Okay, so uh, now let's circle back and play this hypothetical out. You've, you've talked to your assistant. You looked at your calendar. You talked to Jess. You're deciding, Carrie, I'm not going to do your event in July. Tell me, tell me how you would tell me. Got it. So for someone I knew, so not random person, for mm. you, I'm saying, I can't on this date, this doesn't work, but thank you so much for the opportunity. Let's look at the future and see if there's another day. Because I would love to serve you in your ministry, right. right? So that would be awesome. So let's say we don't have the relationship we do and you're never going to do my event. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So I would say thank you so much in this season. Um, I've just got so much going on with my family and my operations or my business or whatever. And I wanna make sure I do the best with the things I've already been entrusted with. But hey, have you met my friend, Mike? I've got a friend named Mike Clear. So my thing is, it's easier to say no when you can pose a potential solution to the problem. And I think most of us, we get so worked up, we want to say yes, then we feel like we have to say no. And through the awkward, we never ease the tension of going, you may not know this person, but this person could actually speak better on this, or they wrote a book on this or whatever. Have you thought about so-and-so? Let me make a connection for you. So my default is to how can I say no, but still serve you? And serving you may be different than what you envisioned coming to speak for you. Serving you may be making a connection with someone that'll actually do a better job or could really move your ministry and their ministry forward. Well, and I got to say, as we wrap up too, that one of the benefits, I think, of structuring your life as, as, I don't want to say as busy as you are, because you are an extremely busy person. Uh, But Frank's the kind of guy that when you hang out with him, he's not like on his phone 20 times a minute. He's fully focused. He's with you. It's it's, it's a joy to hang out with you. But you also, because of the way you structure your life, you have ridiculous responsiveness. Like uh, there was a situation a couple weeks ago where I needed a letter from you that was hand signed, not digitally signed for something I was working on. And I texted you within seconds, I got a response and you said, I'm on it within, I think the hour uh, you were at the courier, like UPS or whatever. And the next day I had it. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Like, but that's the kind of benefit you get when you organize your life and you build in margin. Now, would you do that for everybody? I'm sure you wouldn't do that for everybody. But I mean, I, I just, if you want something done, give it to Frank. Maybe you would do it for everybody. I don't know. <laughs> no. Dude, it's incredible. <laughs> hey, but that's the kind of thing. But that, that's the once freedom, again, right? You're not a slave. That's, like I love your line it, that yes, you know, you're a slave to your calendar, a slave to your chaos. But at the end of the day, if you're a slave to your calendar, you're ultimately free. Right, right. Because then I know, uh, like tonight, um, I love driving my daughter to dance. I, we yeah. get this little talk in the car. I really like it, but it rarely ever works. Her schedule's so weird. Oh gosh, she's she's there so much. You know that she's so yeah. active. Yeah. And so, uh, to I had already made arrangements for somebody else to give her a ride because Jessica's speaking somewhere. I got this business thing. Well, I looked at my schedule and realized I could bump up the business thing a little earlier today. And so I sent a text and said, "Hey, I'm going to drive you to dance tonight. Let's do a little shuffle because I could look in the calendar." 
today, like having a budget of time and go, ooh, if I move this forward a little bit, then I can do the thing I want to do. If you don't know, then I would still be in that state of like, well, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know my timing of this. So you better just go ahead and do it without me. And so, yeah, it gives you that opportunity, that freedom. Oh, you know, it's amazing. We haven't exhausted this subject. We could easily go another hour, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to end it here. And uh, there's two things. Number one, if people want to learn more about you, and Frank wrote a great book called The Myth of Balance, by the way, that you, you guys need to check out. Where can they find you on the internets these days? Yeah, so I'm, I'm really active on social media, of course. Um, Instagram is probably my go-to. I'll do yeah. all of them, but I like Instagram a lot. Um, I know you do too, Carrie. That's like I our do. kind of our go-to one. Um, yeah. So Instagram there for sure. Um, I have frankbeeler.com, people that want to send in formal inquiries about whether it be Faze Family Center or something else, you can you can do that. Uh, but then also you guys can just text me. Um, my number is 470 like if you've got a question, I, I respond to that number pretty slowly. Uh, but I mean, that's an easy way. People can just text and ask questions and we'll figure it out together. That's brilliant. Frank, you are a joy. And uh, thank you so much for this. You challenge me, you inspire me. And uh, I'm just, I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for being my friend. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Man, that was gold. Just absolute gold. Hey, there are transcripts, show notes, and the whole deal over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 242. And uh, I would love for you to check that out too. By the way, I talked to Frank after and with the Faze Family Center, uh, probably within 30 days of the airing of this podcast, there will be a place where you can make inquiries right now. Not really available, but uh, I mean, you can text them about it, I guess. Uh, but a month from now, there'll be a process. They've been inundated with churches who just want to know more. And speaking of knowing more, uh, tomorrow's a very last day for the High Impact Leader. I would love for you to check it out. Uh, I am doing some live coaching, doing four sessions this spring. I would love to include you and your team in on that. That is something that we freed up time for in my calendar. I'll answer your questions as you and your team go through the High Impact Leader and coach you through some things that are in the course and some stuff that's not in the course as well. The High Impact Leader is all about getting your life and leadership back. It's helped thousands of leaders. I'd love it to help you. And it's the system that I use so that I can like do a podcast, blog, write books, have a family life and uh, teach at my church and a whole lot more. So anyway, I really, really hope it helps you like it's helped so many other leaders. And make sure you head over to rethinkleadership.com before it's too late and the rates go up. Bring your team this year in Atlanta the first week of May. We are going to have an incredible time. I'd love to see you there. In the meantime, we are back next week with, well, a couple of episodes, actually. It's going to get good around here. <laughs> this has been a really, really good month. So uh, next up, we got, who do we got? We got Rich Birch, who is back, and he's going to talk about the nuts and bolts of church growth. Here's an excerpt. And and, and this is probably, uh, and I, I probably need to spend more time with my therapist on this, but but there's a part of me at the end of that, though, I was like, man, I wish there was twice as many people here. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, I thought you killed it. Well, from, you're a leader. I, yeah, but I and I, I thought, I thought you killed it from a message point of view. I thought, man, it was such a clear presentation. I thought, I thought the band did such a great job. I thought it was inspirational. I thought, man, there's, there were people who were here tonight. They took a step closer to Christ. 
man, it was fantastic. And and even though it was like record attendance, I was like, yeah, it would have been great if we had twice as many people. And like, and, and, and I have the default of my leadership has been that over the years, you know, saying, Hey, what can we do to try to reach more people next year? And how do we think, pass it along? I think there's a lot of leaders who feel that. We get pretty serious about church growth next Tuesday on the podcast. So good to have Rich back as well. Another good friend. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks for subscribing, for rating, for reviewing, for your feedback, for sharing this episode. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.